Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. It is our great pleasure to welcome onto the podcast this week author Chloe Timms. Chloe Timms' debut novel, The Sea Women, was published in June of this year. The book follows Esther, a young woman raised on an island within a deeply religious society which long ago cut itself off from the mainland. Fellow author Kirsty Logan described it as The Handmaid's Tale meets The Shape of Water. When she is not writing, Chloe is a passionate disability rights campaigner and also hosts the podcast Confessions of a Debut Novelist. Chloe Timms, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me. Our absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. So as you probably know now on the podcast, we love talking to authors and sort of people in the publishing industry about um, the books that they love, the books that have spoken um, to them. And the first question we always ask is the first book that they remember reading. So tell me about, let's go into the past. Tell me about young Chloe and and who she was, what her life was <laughs> well, like. I can say that young Chloe was a, a huge reader, absolutely loved reading. And I mean, I, I imagine my parents read a lot to me. The only memory I really have of my parents reading to me is the book that I was obsessed with, which was um, Spot the Dog. Um, I loved Spot the Dog. And, you know, I think I had the videos as well. And I think there was a, a video of me once watching Spot at the circus and getting very excited. Oh. But, um, for me, the author that I remember as being kind of the biggest love of my childhood was Jacqueline Wilson. I mm. mean, you can't beat Jacqueline Wilson. She is an incredible author. Um, and I, I I, couldn't tell you how many of her books that I've read. I reckon it's going to be over 10. But the one that stands out to me is The Bed and Breakfast Star, um, which mm. is not her most well-known kids' book. Um, but it's one that I really felt attached to. And um, it's about a this sort of dysfunctional family in a, who kind of move around hotels and bed and breakfast because they don't have a house to live in. And I think what Jacqueline Wilson does so well is these kind of gritty, almost dark mm-hmm. family stories, but man- manages to make them child friendly. And uh, I have memories of me kind of reading this book on holiday and also reading in the car, which is something I don't think many people can do without feeling sick, but I managed to be such a kind of addictive reader that I would read in the back of the car because I was so desperate to finish the book. That's a commitment to reading. I've tried, <laughs> I've, I try that still sometimes of going, I can read, you know, mm. on this bus or whatever. No, I'm okay these days, but as a child, I had terrible car sickness. <laughs> and that's the only time it comes back to me is when I'm silly enough to think, oh, I'll try I'll, it again. I'll give, yeah, mm. I'll give it um, a read now. So obviously then, yeah, a voracious reader, you know, yeah. really, yeah, consume, you know, consuming a lot of books and stories. And yet Jacqueline Wilson, obviously um, she's still publishing today. We regularly, ha- we certainly regularly have her books in the shop. And yes, I remember recently on, um, uh, I think it was on TikTok actually, obviously book talk has become a sort of a huge, um, a huge thing. And people were sort of joking about the fact that, oh, you know, they read all these books as a kid, but actually looking back, they realise how dark they are yeah. you know, and how, and I think there's a wonderful lack of you know sort of trying to shy away from certain subjects for children because you know children are a lot more a lot more sort of with it than we give them give them credit for yeah I think I mean she explores like divorce and um kind of domestic abuse and Mm. I mean my parents divorced when I was about um eight years old so um it was kind of nice to have books where even if my situation wasn't the same it was kind of nice to see not the typical family in a book. Mm. And mm. I think that's what Jacqueline Wilson does so well. And even as I grew up kind of uh, later in my childhood and I read the kind of girls and loves girls and love books and they were about anorexia and bulimia, I think, and, and, and all sorts of topics that were quite mature, but she handles them in such a straightforward way and such mm. an accessible way as well. And I think that's what makes her such a great author. And I can't think of any other author that really, 
inspired me. I mean, I used to write when I was a child as well. I mean, um, I've always been always been writing my own stories. And I imagine that Jacqueline Wilson was one of those authors that I kind of dreamt of becoming, really, because yes. of her yeah, books yeah, yeah. so good. Exactly. And I think, um, uh, as you were saying, that importance of seeing an experience or something that sort of speaks to a, a child personally reflected in a, in a book is, is um, you know, is so important. And really, I think, again, in, sort of encourages reading because, of course, um, you know, in a lot of children's books, I think, but, you know, particularly sort of we might, we're sort of going on, you know, back to kind of pre, you know, pre Jacqueline Wilson as well. You know, childhood is, I think, usually, you know, certainly within the family or whatever it is depicted as quite idyllic almost, you know, mm. the kind of ideal of what, a, a fa- and of course, you know, no family adheres to this, to this ideal. And I think it's, you know, it's great that she's always reflected on, you know, as you say, the housing situation isn't, you know, isn't secure. And of course, then that was brought over to TV when they televised things like Tracy Beaker and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, it's, that's hugely important. It's something I talk to authors a lot on here, particularly children's authors, is that kind of increased awareness of, you know, all kind of children, you know, finding themselves in books or at least characters that have a similar sort of experience and and how important that is. Yeah, obviously I'm not a children's writer, but I think children's um, writing, young adult authors write such brilliantly diverse books now. And I, and I think um, I think they're almost leaps ahead of adult fiction in a way because you are seeing a better reflection of society, whether it be um, race, sexuality, gender, um, disability. We're seeing those stories and we're seeing them more in children's fiction than we are in adult. Um, I think adult fiction needs to step up a little bit, really. I Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's a very good point. I think, yeah, children's publishing has led the way and I think um, adult fiction needs to needs to catch up there's a gap between them now and I think yeah absolutely then there needs to be a a catch up there are there ever so Jacqueline Wilson um the bed and breakfast star is one that stands out for you are are there any other books you know sort of going into your teenage years are there you know uh, were you some people have a sort of a dip in reading in their teenage years you know what was the case for you were you still a, a big reader then yeah so I think my dip was probably I guess late teens I'm I'm probably reckoning about 17 to maybe 20 when I kind of pretty much stopped reading altogether but before then there's that kind of transitional phase where you're not reading children's books anymore and you want that kind of adult book and I don't really think that YA was a thing when I was growing up so I read there were there were two books that really stand out for me that I read when I was I, I think about 12 and one of those was the um, Shopaholic series of books by Sophie Kinsella they are brilliant books. I absolutely adored them. I think they were the sort of books that I just wanted to devour at the time. And then the other book that really stands out to me, which was really quite a chunky book for a 12-year-old and probably a very grown-up book for a 12-year-old, was um, Maeve Binchy to Light a Penny Candle. And I haven't revisited it, but I know it's a kind of classic and Maeve Binchy is beloved, but I have never gone back and reread any of it because I kind of see it as this really special book in my life that really introduced me to adult fiction and mm. I was probably too grown up actually for a 12 year old read but I was quite advanced in my um kind of reading ability when I was um young and so I remember taking it away with me and um really staying up late to finish it I think I was staying with my dad at the time and um I, I must have been 12 or 13 because I remember it was like the year of the early Big Brother was on was on TV, and I remember that finishing, and then I was like, I'm going to stay up and finish my May Finchie because I was just totally addicted to it, um, and I almost don't want to revisit it in case it's not as good as I remember. That's always a worry, isn't it? When you've really loved something, but it's bit. I feel there's a you know a period where sort of going back to it, oh, that seems fine, but the moment you pass that. It's sort of, I don't know, you kind of mythologize it in your head and it, it feels like a shame almost to to ruin that. Of course, you could go back and go, oh, it's just as wonderful as I remember. And there's no reason why it wouldn't be. But of course, you know, there'll no doubt be bits that you didn't, you know, that you don't remember. And you think, oh, I don't, you know, and it, it'll be it'll be surprising and new. It'd probably be like reading a, a new book, you know, from the start. Yeah, I don't really remember a huge amount of the plot. I just remember how it made me feel and mm. how the kind of effect it had on me at the time. 
and I remember just it was it was a long book I think it's about 400 or 500 pages and that was probably the longest book I've ever read as a child and um but I I remember I think I, I'd said to my mom I need a book to read that's gonna and I think she'd seen in me that I was now ready to read a grown-up kind mm. of book um and so gave me that because I mean obviously I I had a library card and I I think at 12 you're allowed to move on to the adult section and you're allowed to borrow 10 books instead of five or whatever it was yes um and again I mean the library was incredible and I I I wish I had I could remember what books I picked up there um because again I was probably reading books that were way too old for me and I wasn't mature enough for but because my reading level was at that point I was desperate for I guess more and more challenging books and books that were I think at 12, I, I probably thought I was an adult at that point. So I was able to to read those books about adult experiences. But I loved going into the adult section of the library and having all these books. And and it was like, I guess, opening, the, the having the keys to a, a magical world, I suppose, and having all these books and, and being in awe with them, really, knowing that I could, and all these books are free. I mean, that's what's so amazing as well about libraries is that you can, you know, you can use them and yeah. pick from all these books and it is incredible and I, I think and, and it's a shame that we've lost so many libraries over the last 10 years or so um but yeah I mean an, another great love of mine was the day at school where the um the book fair would come and you got to pick some books and that was like the magic day <laughs> it is a magic day we um we do that here for for some schools and it's so fun to mm. work on that day because the energy is just amazing oh god yeah i can imagine and um it's interesting as well hearing you talk about um you know being an advanced reader for your age when you were 12 you know that's something um we come up a lot obviously we do you know ya does sort of um exist now and is a really you know it's a huge area for for book selling but we sort of have that you know have the attitude that you know if a child likes the look of the book and kind of wants to give it a go as long as they have all the information and their parents have all the information about what sort of might be in that that actually that freedom to choose the book that you want to read is so important because again it's about you know keeping them reading if you sort of say oh no you should read this book but as you say some children do get to a point where you can see they really want to challenge and the reverse is true as well. I mean, uh, you know, I'm dyslexic and we have, you know, dyslexic readers coming into the shop. And sometimes there's a sort of a shame attached to maybe reading a book that's seen as like slightly younger. But I was, you know, for a long time reading books that were younger than my sort of actual age. Mm. Um, but I was enjoying them. And that was, yeah. you know, that's the key thing you, that we shouldn't be restricted by that idea. I think that's sometimes the problem with school. And I mean, I used to be a primary school teacher, so I know the challenges that teachers face. But reading almost becomes a little bit like a chore or a little bit like a competition sometimes. And I remember in, I think I was about 10 and I was really, really into the horrible histories books as are so many children. And I had borrowed, I think three horrible histories books in a row from my school library. And I think there was a note from my teacher saying, you need to read something else next time. And I remember thinking, why I'm really enjoying these books yeah and I also yeah. you know you get a lot from horrible histories because you're learning the history side of it and they're fun and they're yes oh, they're so gross funny. and you know all those elements of it and the same with you know I would read a lot of Jacqueline Wilson in a row I'd read a couple of Roald Dahl in a row and I think I understand why they want children to have that range of, of books and I understand the reasoning behind it but I think to get children to read in the first place is a challenge. And if you, if they're enjoying something, why put a stop to that and why discourage mm. it? Because that could be stopping them reading for good, you know? So I think whatever they're reading, I think, I mean, even if, if it's the case of they're reading on their phone, I don't see it as a bad thing. It's just a different way of reading. So, mm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. So, and I think like you've said, sometimes it's that thing of, thinking oh that they, they should be reading something more complicated more advanced but they're having fun I don't really see I don't exactly. really see why yeah that's the thing it's you know it's about enjoyment and that's the most uh, important thing and sort of skipping forward to today uh you're an author um you run a, a podcast about you know being a, a, a debut author as well you know what's your reading like today you know do do you feel you have less time for reading or do you find you're reading more what, what's the situation for Chloe? I read a ridiculous amount I read probably about 
three books a week sometimes. Wow. Um, I have to do a lot of reading for the podcast. So I'm usually reading a book a week for that. Um, I'm also reading to inform the next book that I'm working on. Oh, yeah, lovely. Read for fun as well. Um, I have a ridiculous number of unread books on my shelves just because I <laughs> so often and I can't resist. Um, I also borrow from the library as well. Um, and so, yes, I, I read, I would say, probably about 130 books a year. Um, I've read more this year just simply because I'm reading more for the podcast. Um, and I probably read more books for that than I have done that are kind of books I've chosen. But I don't see it as a hardship because I absolutely love reading. And also reading for the podcast has meant I read books that I wouldn't normally read. So sometimes I'll read a genre that is not normally my taste or what I would choose. And it's, it's introduced me to authors that I wouldn't have possibly discovered otherwise. So it's been a joy really. And um, I also really enjoy audio books mainly when I'm, I do embroidery just as for, just for fun. Usually at the weekend and I stick on an audio book and I find that I can concentrate on an audio, but when I'm doing embroidery, if I'm listening to an audio book anywhere else, I can't concentrate. So oh, okay. it has to be like kind of quiet when I'm doing something crafty with my hands that I can really get myself immersed in this audio book. Yes, I am. Um, I'm a recent um, convert to audio books, actually, because I found you've put me absolutely to shame because for <laughs> me, one book in a week is like uh oh wow like i feel like uh, i don't know i feel like someone should give me like a badge or something i'm like i did it one book a week is good i don't think that like again we shouldn't make it into a competitive thing because there shouldn't be a number on it i mean i i um the the way i really because like as i said to you when i sort of was 20 i'd kind of stopped really reading i'd maybe read one book in the summer and that'd be it but the way i kind of got back into it was i decided that basically I was spending too much time staring at my screen or my phone. So I made it my aim to read for one hour every day, every single day. Oh, nice. And it's amazing how quickly you get through books just from reading an hour a day. And now I stick to my hour, but then I I do read extra just simply because I I have to read more at the moment. Um, But yeah, sticking to an hour a day is amazing how many books you get through. Oh, that's a good, yeah, having that, um, you know, that scheduled time mm. yeah um that that sounds like a good way of doing it because i sort of find i'm terrible for going oh you know oh, oh i'll read i'll read in five minutes then i'll just do yeah. this first or i just and then you know or worse social media mm. go on i go on social media and i think no where is this hour gone terrible i think i saw from a blog of yours actually talking about like twitter like i don't know the drawer of twitter when you oh, like, yeah. should be writing like yeah it's <laughs> Absolutely. Twitter is the, the my nemesis, really. I I mean, it's even sometimes when I'm reading, I'll, I'll, I'll read for half an hour and then I'll think, oh, I'll just check Twitter for a minute. But like you say, after 10 minutes, that 10 minutes becomes an hour and you click on a link and then you're reading an article or a blog post or you're replying to a message and then it yeah. sucks your time away, which is why I made the conscious effort to say, OK, for one hour only, I'm going to put everything down. And yes, read. absolutely. That's very important. And, you know, with the finding the different formats as well, what works for you, you mm-hmm. know, um, now I found, um, you know, audiobooks, I've realized actually that works really well for me because my thing is my my eyes get tired very easily. And actually, you know, just sort of sitting there and, you know, doing something else. I agree. It has to there has to be something else contemplative going on. Um, or I find on public transport, I sort of go into i don't know a sort of a a zone where that's fine anywhere else yeah i can't i find myself going oh wait and i have to skip back by like a minute (laughs) because i'm like actually no i haven't taken any of this in what's happening um so yeah i i completely agree with that so what's um in terms of so yeah doing lots of reading for your podcast what's um a book that you've read relatively recently that's really sort of you know stood out for you or or, or comes to your mind yeah so the book i want to talk about is actually one I listened to on audio um, and it's The Last Days by Ali Miller and it's a memoir and memoir is something I've really got into in the last couple of years and again I really for me audiobooks work best when they're non-fiction I think I do struggle a little bit with fiction on audio because it's that really following it closely with a memoir I think often when it's someone else 
telling their story. There's something almost about it that feels like a radio show, and I find that easier to concentrate on. Okay, yeah. And I always used to think I've got no interest in memoir or autobiography or anything like that. And I suppose there used to be an association that it was all kind of celebrity um, autobiographies or or, or biographies. Mm -hmm. And then um, I can't remember where my kind of interest in memoir started, but I now have it's become one of my favorite genres, and I love listening to people's real life stories or thing events that have happened to them or something in particular they're exploring in their identity. And I've read some amazing memoirs, but the last days by Ali Miller is an exploration of her leaving um, the Jehovah's witnesses. And I'm really interested in kind of cults and religious organizations that are kind of on the extremist side. And I'm particularly fascinated by, how they work and how they attract people, but also where that line comes where people decide that it's not for them or they want to get out of it because often these organisations are pretty difficult to leave. Um, and Ali Miller's writing is so lyrical and beautiful. And, I mean, she reads it herself, which makes it even more special. I think when you're reading a memoir that's being read by the person that wrote it, there's so much emotion in there. And um, that was one that really stood out for me lately. And I, as I said, I, I particularly like memoirs and I'm always looking for ones that are going to kind of tick my boxes in terms of the topic. And this one really does. Yeah, that sounds like a really, yeah, a really interesting um, story. And, and for particularly for me, my ears sort of pricked up then because um, my grandmother later on in life actually became a Jehovah's Witness. Um, she she passed away last year and we, we you know, the family were close, but there was an interesting dynamic there because the rest of the family isn't religious. And I think religion and its sort of social aspects or, you know, or, or for many different reasons, it is such an interesting area and such a, a fascinating subject to, to explore. Mm, definitely. And I mean, I have always been interested in that, the kind of psychology of it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, it something when I was writing my novel, The Sea Women, I did a lot of research about, people who had escaped or left these organizations. Um, I read a lot of memoirs actually of women who had left, particularly American memoirs where they'd left like Scientology and things like that. Yes. Uh, Because I just find, A, I find it so fascinating why people join these societies in the first place. Mm. Uh, What is it that appeals to them and whether it's kind of charismatic leaders or whether it's something about the structure that makes them fascinated and the community, I guess. And then um, also what tips them over the edge and what makes them reconsider whether it's their beliefs or whether they see something in the outside world that they crave. And those are the kind of themes that I explored in my writing as well. So it was really, I, I think I'm, even though I'm not writing that book anymore and I've moved on, I will always be drawn to those kind of topics. And I think I will always, I always watch the the documentaries that are about a cult, and I'll always read the books that are about that because I still find <laughs> yeah. it so interesting. We all have those, um, I think those, um, those subject areas where you see a book or a documentary and you think sold. You know, yeah. <laughs> Netflix or wherever says you know knows you through the algorithm and is like you're going to like this, and you're like, yeah, probably I, yeah. I, I am. <laughs> and um, yes, because that makes me think of, and of course, there has been a lot of interesting writing of that particularly I mean I think there always has but it feels like particularly in the sort of the five years because um I think educated by Tara West oh that's an incredible book yeah I love that yeah Yeah. but yes as you said you know that was a lot of that was research for the sea women which is out um which is already out and it sounds like you're you're now working on on something else which is um yes yeah yeah I won't I won't I always feel like when an author says that, I'm like, you're so tempted to be like, oh, what's that about? But then you're like, no, 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 we're talking about the current book. We're talking yeah, about Yeah, and it's, it's early days. And, I, and uh, course, we all know yeah. books can change a lot when, you, when you're working on oh, them. So yeah. I, won't, I won't say too much. But I think writers tend to often explore similar things in their books just mm, because absolutely. Um, you have a lot of crossover with topics that interest you and, and themes that regularly make an appearance in your work just because that's what you enjoy writing about, I suppose. Yes, exactly. I think it's one of the joys of um, really actually reading several of an author's works is kind of seeing those those common themes that, you know, crop up. I, I think that's, um, 
you know, writing is kind of a way of, you know, fiction or whatever is a kind of a way of understanding something, I feel. You know, I feel a lot of writers, you know, write to kind of understand the world, even in kind of extreme fantasy, you know, I feel I feel it's all really a kind of a process of, of mulling things over. And it's fun to see an author, you know, where you go, oh, this particular subject, you know, really is something that they're kind of going over and, you know, it's part, part of the joy of it, really. Yeah, definitely. I think even like you say, even if you're writing high fantasy, there are elements of current world politics or society and culture that that creep in there, whether you're intending to write about that or not. I think yes, yeah. um, they do they do leak into your work. Yeah. The real world has a, a a tenacious habit of kind of finding its way into everything. Even if you want to go, no, I want to ignore that for a while. It's kind of it's always there. So yes, obviously, um, you, you know, been reading um, for the for the research for the book, but also for your pro- podcast as well. Now, a big question, which I always feel slightly mean asking, and I say this almost every time on the podcast, and yet I ask it anyway because I think it's a <laughs> it's a huge question, and different author, authors have different approaches to it, and I find that just as interesting as well. Which is a book that changed your life. Of course, for some, that could be several books, or they might just say they can't even pick a single book. But what's your reaction to that? What comes to your mind when I... My reaction always feels like a really obvious choice, but it's a totally honest choice in that my book would be The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Mm. And I think when I read it, which was probably when I was about 15 at school, and we studied it for school, we studied it for an exam, um, I had never read anything like it in my life I didn't know a fiction could do what it does and it's such mm. a short book it's such a concise book and I think Margaret Atwood's world building is incredible and I really like that she says that nothing in her book is fictional in a way because everything she wrote she based on something that's happened in history and the book has obviously become hugely popular again because of the tv show and it's become in the kind of consciousness of everyone really and and it's talked about a lot when we particularly when we talk about kind of the politics of women's bodies um and body autonomy and it it has become a little bit of a kind of cliche and you see kind of women dressing up in the the red outfits with the white hoods and it's come it's become a little bit I guess overused maybe a bit kind of um cheesy in some ways but for me the book as a book itself still means so much to me because mm-hmm. it had such a powerful impact on me when I was 14. And and I just remember, I mean, I had an amazing English teacher at the time and she had such a passion for this novel as well. And she would, you know, she'd pick a sentence on a page and we would spend 45 minutes discussing one sentence. And oh, wow. I just, that's that's what I've always loved I mean, I know that's what's put some people off reading, I think. The <laughs> idea that you uh, in school you have to analyse things to the end yeah. degree. But then when you get a book like The Handmaid's Tale where there's so much space left for the reader mm. to fill in the gaps, and that's one thing I love about fiction, and particularly that's one thing I love about speculative fiction. Um, and I was having this conversation with another author recently. Her name's um, Rochelle Atala. She's written a, a novel called The Pharmacist. And her book does what The Handmaid's Tale does, which is doesn't tell you everything. And there are gaps in there where the reader has to do a bit of work and use their imagination and you don't get all the answers. And that's what I loved about The Handmaid's Tale is that, you know, even, and hopefully this doesn't spoil it for anyone, but even at the ending, you don't really know exactly what happens. And yes, it's up to you to decide what you think has happened. I mean, I know she's written a sequel, which kind of spoiled it a little bit for me if I'm honest. <laughs> um because I think that book is so that book has always been so special for me because I love that you don't get all the answers about what's happened to the world and why it is but why it's become this kind of um regime and I, I like the idea that you've got to do the work a little bit and you've got to mm. you've got to imagine it for yourself and fill in the gaps and also I like that she had so many kind of references to biblical things that you then have to I mean I I remember my teacher saying in the summer holidays we have to go and read the bible because we were then going to read the handmaid's tale and she wanted us Uh, to have a bit of biblical knowledge before we went into it um needless to say I did not read the whole bible (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah I just I just find 
there's so many layers to it. And I mean, I, I can, I've read it a couple of times now. Nothing beats the first time reading it where I had my incredible English teacher telling me, well, letting us discuss various things and, and picking apart the words that Margaret Atwood would use. And yeah, I just, it really totally shook up my idea of what fiction can be and what it, what it is. And and I'd never read a book like it. And I don't know whether I'm ever going to feel the same about a book again. I just, I almost feel a bit sad that the book's almost become a little bit of a, a buzzword and a cliche now, because mm-hmm. I actually think it's, it's special to me. And I think it's, it's more than that. And I think it's, it's a shame that it's become a little bit of a, a kind of, I guess, a white feminist cliche really to use it rather than to to engage with issues and just kind of go oh we're we're living in Gilead whereas actually for for some women they have been um more ostracized than than Gilead explores so yeah I I um but I I love the book and I I uh I I have reread it recently um I reread it when I was writing my novel just because I mean, I, I'm grateful for the quote that Kirstie Logan gave where she compared my book to Handmaid's Tale. I don't think it is anywhere as good as The Handmaid's Tale, but um, I did very much try to use the idea that Margaret Atwood have, has about using things that have happened in the world throughout history and not kind of make anything up in that sense mm-hmm. um, in terms of the way women are treated, because I think enough atrocities have happened to women that we don't need to push the boat any further. Yes, new ones don't need to be invented mm. when, when sort of human history, unfortunately, offers up a slew of um, examples. Uh, and I think it's really interesting you uh, to hear you talk about, you know, your love of The Handmaid's Tale, but also kind of, you know, saying, you know, at the same time, but, you know, actually, in some ways, it's become... Uh, a cliche or kind of like an easy shorthand for something mm. that people that people kind of use because i think actually sometimes some of the most um meaningful books to us you can also have a kind of a, a, a difficult relationship with sometimes or, or there is a difficulty there because you can say oh actually you know i mean anyone who i'm sure is really into books from a certain period of the you know the past will go oh i love these books but actually you know there's loads in it that's you know, when looked through, you know, the lens of today is actually you think, well, that, you know, there's something problematic there or there's something that, you know, doesn't um, doesn't work. Um, and I think that's a, a kind of another part of reading, really, is that books are difficult things. And, you know, particularly when they talk about people and issues, you know, like The Handmaid's Tale, as you say, you know, it's it's a piece of fiction, but everything in there you can you can find in history so you know it has much to say about our world and kind of say about our society as any sort of non you know non-fiction book and that's always good you know that's always going to be difficult and that's always going to bring um bring things up going on to your book now was for the sea women you know when did that idea sort of come into your head when did you know that this was the book that you wanted to write I don't have like a light bulb moment for the kind of genesis of um, the sea women because it kind of came to me in different pieces, I suppose. So I'd written a poem in 2014 for a short uh, fiction writing course I was doing and we had a poetry module and I'm, I'm really not a poet, but I had to write a poem and I'd kind of come up with this idea of a woman on the edge of a coastline and a... I guess a merman emerging from the water, but them never being able to get to each other because the woman couldn't swim. She was married to a fisherman and there was that kind of that angst really. And I'd had this idea for, for ages and I kept kind of revisiting it in my mind and thinking about it. And then I was doing um, an MA at uh, the university of Kent and we had to do a um, piece of writing to submit for a workshop and, so I decided to revisit this idea that I'd written in the poem, but turning it into a short story. And I started to think, okay, well, what kind of woman would live on the coast and not be able to swim? Ah, okay, yes. And then yeah. because I'd really loved kind of these dystopian novels and this these kind of speculative, the speculative fiction, I decided to kind of make this place that she lived into a, a regime or a kind of controlled society yeah. and so I explored this idea of an island that were controlled by a 
um, a cult. And that's really where the idea began. And it kind of started as life as a short story. And then my, one of my tutors said to me, this is too big for a short story. You're going to have to try and attempt to turn it into a novel. And first of all, I was really anti the idea of writing a novel because I thought it was too much hard work. <laughs> and, then I, um, and then I thought, no, I, there's something about this that I really mm. think has potential. And I wrote a version of it and I think I got to about 40,000 words. And then there was something about it that wasn't quite working. And I realized what I needed to do was flip the perspective and start the story much earlier and start the mm. story from Esther's point of view, which is now how the story is. And mm. it's from Esther's point of view. And we see her grow up on this island that is controlled by a religious cult. And it didn't always used to be a religious cult. In my mind, it was just a kind of shady government type figure mm. in the background. But the more work I did on it, the more I realized that it works better when it was an antagonist that we could meet and that we could get to know. And so then mm. I created the character of Father Jessup, who is the man that runs the cult. Um, and he became one of my favourite characters to write, actually, because kind of trying to embody someone that is on the outside very charismatic, very very um, amiable, but inside is despicable was, was a really fun challenge to do. Mm. Um, and I ended up reading a lot of kind of speeches that were given by dictators and reading a lot of... Um, things like Nazi propaganda and things like that to try and see the language that was used and try mm. and create that in a, in a different way. And as I said, I read a lot of cult memoirs to try and make my own religious cult. So it's not based on any particular religion. They have their own kind of holy book and they have their own belief system. And so the idea was one that changed. I always had, a sense of what the island was but um i think like most writers the the details of it came at different points and i was quite influenced as i said by people like sophie mcintosh kirsty logan who was kind enough to give me a quote for the front cover she her writing really really appeals to me because i love the way she uses kind of um folklore and fairy tale and myth but makes it really mm -hmm. contemporary um, and makes it really fresh and that was something I really wanted to explore because there is a fantastical element to the novel because the um, islanders believe that in the water are these creatures called the sea women and they believe that these are kind of selkie or mermaid type creatures who mm. are basically a corrupting evil influence so um, the women of the island are very heavily controlled because basically the men on the island want to preserve what they have and preserve that this kind of sacred island that they have so yeah it kind of came that the inspiration came from a lot of different angles and I think um I had some advice once from a from a tutor of mine that said often when you're having ideas for things you want to write sometimes what you think are separate ideas are actually the same idea but you've got to kind of combine them so I think that's kind of what happened <laughs> That's great. I, I, that's a really interesting. I've never heard anything like you know. Speak to a lot of you know. Speak to a lot of writers on here, but I really like that the idea that you know if you have a couple of ideas going around your head, well maybe actually, in some way they mm -hmm. they, they need to come together. That's quite uh, because I'm, I'm sure as a writer, ideas sort of come in small forms all the time, mm -hmm. and actually one of the big difficulties is deciding, well, what do I now? sit down and actually you know and actually write I, I you know I can imagine it's quite tempting to be like oh but actually I quite, I'll just write a sentence about you know I don't know yeah. and get <laughs> by some of the do you find that or are you quite like sort of I always tell people that I'm not an ideas person <laughs> which is probably not true but I I for me I find that I I because I know now what goes into a novel and how much you have to be committed to it and how many hours and how many times you have to read it. It has to be an idea that I think is really going to last that scrutiny mm. and you've got to be able to sit with it for a long time. And I think if I have an idea that I don't think is going to work for a novel, I've already dismissed it before. I've even had a long time to think about it. So I really have to spend a long time. I'm not one of these writers that has 
500 ideas and just has to get them down on paper. For me, the idea process is one that kind of evolves. So I'll, I'll read something um, and that interests me, but then I'll sit with it for a while. Um, it doesn't It doesn't kind of spiral from that one thought. It takes time, I think, almost like planting a seed and watching it grow. Mm. The ideas are a bit like that. You have to, and I think because I read a lot and because I, I am a writer that when I'm writing my novel, I read a lot. Um, I know of some writers that don't read at all when they're writing, but I find that it's kind of like my fuel and I'm, when I'm reading, I am, it's almost like part of my brain is still working on my book. And so I kind of feel that as I'm reading someone else's book, my brain starts firing and going, what about this? What about this? And sometimes I'll have to put a book down and then go back to my writing because it's not that I've read something that I want to copy or, or <laughs> but it's just something about other people's writing. And particularly when they're a writer that really inspires me and their language that they use is really evocative, that somehow sets off my synapses and starts pinging in my brain. And I have to then go back to my work and put the book away for a while. Mm. I know I, I, I completely understand that because I think, we have, you know, people in the shop who say, oh, I love reading, um, but then make a comment to suggest that they're not a creative person in any way. And <laughs> I'm like, well, but reading is a creative, mm. you know, it's an act of creation. You know, it, it's a, a relationship between the writer and the reader. And, you know, the writer can describe a scene, but it, it's you in your head that kind of adds in. You, it's like you talking about this um, writing that allows the reader to fill in the gaps i mean it all does in a way because you know if you say i don't know they're in a house you know you might not necessarily describe every detail so your brain has to kind of fill yeah. in the gaps yeah i love that and and i think sometimes it's hard as a writer to remember that readers do that all the time and mm. um, quite often i i do um sometimes do mentoring and and workshops and i often am leaving feedback from people that says trust your reader they don't need to know this and pare back a little bit. I mean, I do it too. Uh, I'll want to describe something more or I want to really give someone almost stage directions, I guess. But what you forget is that a lot of readers, as they're reading out, almost playing the movie in their heads and you're just giving them bits of the script and they fill in the rest. And I, I like you say, I love that it's a kind of a relationship between the reader and the writer. And I have the thing I've enjoyed most about being published is hearing from readers and getting feedback where they say mm. oh this is my favorite scene or my favorite character and and I have so many readers because um again without giving anything away the ending of my book is left quite open oh, and I've had so many readers tell me their version of the end and that is oh, one of my favorite things because I have to say it frustrates well my best friend has texted me telling me her version and then she said and now tell me what actually happens. <laughs> and my reply was, no, I'm not telling you what actually happens because it doesn't matter what I think. Actually, mm. the important part is what you think is the ending, um, which didn't please her because she thought she had exclusive access to the author and wanted the, uh, the final say on what actually happens. But, I mean, I do have my own version and I, I have my own interpretation of, of the ending, but I much prefer not telling people and I much prefer hearing their version because to me that's far more satisfying to know that they've thought about it and they have an emotional response to how they want it to end. And I think anything I say would spoil that a little bit. And that's really interesting because, you know, people have, people do get this idea of there being a sort of an official ending and the author is the kind of the only source of kind of the true elements of the story and I think you know particularly in the world of the internet fan fiction stuff you know oh, yeah those I doors mean, like, have been blown open. I had this argument with my editor because my editor had a very different idea of what happens after the ending than I do and uh, I had a we had an, not an argument, but a, a <laughs> professional argument about the ending. Um, and my editor kept changing a word and I kept changing it back and they changed it again and I changed it back. Because to me, changing that particular phrase altered what I thought it should be interpreted as. But my editor then joked and said, well, I don't care what the what you say the ending is, I'm going to release fan fiction to to tell everyone the real the real ending. Um, <laughs> so if anyone wants to write their own... Uh, 
fan fiction of the end, I'm, I'm more than happy. But yeah, like you say, to me, that, I mean, I've written fan fiction. I love the idea of fans interacting with, with fiction. I mean, that's what you create for. You create to have readers interact with and have responses to your work. I wouldn't want people to shut the book and go, okay, that's done, and just move on <laughs> and about it. You want, you want people to be, Over, yeah, yeah. <laughs> overdone, you know, complete. You want it to resonate with people and for them to be thinking about your characters. And, and if ever, that, I, I like stories where everything's not tied up neatly with a bow. I like there to be an element of an openness. Um, and that's been the best part is, is hearing and I and I always wonder how people interpret my answers because I never say, "Oh yes, you're correct. That is the ending," um, because often it isn't that their version is not my version. But I I don't want to spoil their enjoyment of their interpretation of it. I I'm quite happy to to hear their version and I support them however they want it to uh, to finish. That's fine by me. And do you think as well with sort of books, you know, like The Handmaid's Tale? Um, or yours, the, the sea women, where the, these kind of these gaps are left, but also because of the subject matter, because, you know, it's through these stories, you're kind of exploring, you know, oppression in the real world, or kind of, you know, the reality of people's lives in the real world, but actually those gaps, where someone's imagination can kind of fill them also kind of, if it was a kind of a close, no, this is the official story, it has a beginning and the end, you know, and I've said that, that suggests a kind of a, a closed offness, a kind of an official. You you talk about in your book that they have their own version of like a sort of you know scripture. It becomes almost scripture then, like this is the only word. But actually, having that freedom allows a kind of a the reader to kind of think about well, how do the words in this book kind of relate to my life or like the world I live in? And I don't know that that freedom to imagine is kind of important. Yeah, there. absolutely. Because I think that often when we write about and when we witness societies that are oppressive or regimes that are very controlling, there is no easy end. There is no quick solution to these things being disbanded or there being a revolution or change. Change doesn't happen overnight. And that's why I think um, my ending is very much left open because if I resolved everything in the book, I think it would be really unsatisfying. Mm. And I think that it would feel really inauthentic. And I think the same with The Handmaid's Tale. You can't suddenly have Offred, you know, overthrow the government and suddenly everything has gone back to normal because also society would still be completely different. Um, there mm. is no return to normal. And I think that's the same when you're trying to reflect the world that you live in, even if you're doing it under a slightly fantastical lens we are only living in the present we don't know what's going to happen in 10 years 20 years time we mm. don't know what society is going to look like we cannot solve the problems that we have in our world um by you know a quick fix so i think leaving it open leaves it more realistic anyway and i think i think over explaining things or trying to find an obvious or a simple answer would be unsatisfying to read. And and like I said, when I was having this conversation with um, Rochelle Atala about her novel, The Pharmacist, and she said, I don't know, hers is set in a nuclear bunker. And she says, I don't know what's gone on in the outside world. And again, her readers, I think, feel the same frustrations. Um, but does it matter? Because actually that's, it's the letting the readers decide is the most exciting part about fiction, I think, is is letting letting your imagination run wild. And that's what we enjoy as authors. And that's hopefully what readers enjoy as well. Yes, absolutely. I think that, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that for me, that, that freedom, those gaps, they're the most exciting thing. Mm. I have had a lot of feedback of people saying, even though to me the ending is open, I've had a lot of people because they have such an emotional response and they build in their head their own ideas of what happens next. A lot of people have said that they found the ending very satisfying, but I wonder whether that's because they have interpreted it how they want it to end, possibly. And then that's good because I haven't disappointed anyone by the last yes, page. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, of course, the Sea Women is out, you know, right now. It's out in the world as a debut novelist. Like, how does that? How does that feel? Yeah, I've loved hearing from people, hearing from readers has been my favourite aspect of the whole thing. And there's nothing that beats someone 
excitedly sending you a message um, and strangers sending me messages to say how much they've enjoyed it or how much they really liked particular character and I've had book clubs that have read it and had deep discussions about it and that's just been incredible and so much fun yes yeah suddenly having that that sort of organic response as well because you know if you give a book to a friend you know that their their response either way you know it's it's been it's been prompted but when someone's found a book on their own or maybe with a book you know with the help of a bookseller and then decided to reach out to you there's a lot of chances there that that couldn't have that that might not have happened they could have reached for a different book or they might have decided not to reach out I mean that's I mean what a wonderful thing that must be just so rewarding I, I you know so, yeah so exciting yeah it's definitely the best part I don't think anything's going to beat that really I think hearing from people that you don't even know but have mm-hmm. I think writing is so personal and it's uh it's quite intimate really to be bearing your brain into someone else's brain I suppose um and that's such a, a fun thing to have people say that they read it and they and I love hearing people discuss it because I find it quite funny because to me it's just a little thing I made up and so people <laughs> discuss it as a real living thing with characters yeah, yeah. that exist to them almost like real people has, has been an incredible experience and yeah I'm really excited and if anyone has any theories about the ending and that they want to tell me please let me know because I love hearing them oh that's good well as I said, it's it's out now. It's available in bookshops, in libraries, wherever you get your books from, it will be av- available there. And it's certainly available at Mostly Books, both on our website and in our store as well. And as you heard from Chloe herself, you know, if you read it, if you have any of those theories, you know, reach out, let her know, you know, you don't have to hold back. It doesn't have to just stay just with you. She, you know, she would love to hear them. Chloe also, um, as we previously mentioned, runs the podcast Confessions of a Debut Novelist. So check that out as well. Chloe Timms, thank you so much for joining us on Mostly Books Meets. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.